In this video, you see two extremely tiny babies. They're in separate beds, wrapped in plastic. They're intubated, which means they've got a tube in their airway that's helping them to breathe. Their eyes are still fused shut. Their skin is almost translucent. They're so minuscule, you could hold them in the palm of your hand. That's The Globe's health reporter, Kelly Grant. So this is Adriel and Adia Nadaraja, and they are Canadian babies who hold the Guinness World Record for the most premature and lightest twins to have survived their first birthday. Kelly has been speaking with the parents of those two babies and their doctors. They were born 22 weeks and zero days into their mother's pregnancy, and a full-term pregnancy uh, runs 40 weeks. So that's a little over halfway into their mom's pregnancy. This story is part of a much larger and difficult discussion about babies born at the edge of viability. When to try to save them and when to let them die because they're just too young and probably won't survive. These babies almost didn't make it. Today, Kelly is going to tell us the story of Adia and Adriel as the twins turn a year old. Kelly is going to take it from here. I'm Kelly Grant, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. And then tell me about when you guys learned you're having twins. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I can... Go first, I guess. So I just I got in touch with Shakina Rajendram and Kevin Nadaraja through Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, and they're the parents of Adriel and Adia. Mount Sinai introduced me to this family right after they and their doctor, nurse, and social worker all wrote a piece for the Canadian Medical Association Journal about what was involved in the birth and care of these babies. So even a few a few days leading up to the baby's birth, everything was still going along really well. We still had no indication that we were going to have the babies um, so soon. We would the day before Shakina went into labor. So this is early March. She and Kevin had a really normal day. They went for a walk. They had a nice dinner. They were talking in sort of hazy terms about things they needed to get for the babies. Um, we were just starting to think about what we would need. In our house, you know, we're starting to look into upgrading our vehicle. We're starting to think about car seats and and cribs and so on. So just enjoying. The due date was so far away. It wasn't until July 8th that they they felt they had boatloads of time. So then overnight, Shakina had some pain. And when she woke up in the morning, she found she was bleeding. So she and Kevin rushed to their local hospital. Uh, she was examined. Uh, he pulled away, he looked at the nurse and he said, uh, yeah, I think this, and then he looked at us, I think this pregnancy is a loss. Uh, the babies may come out any minute uh, now or during the day. and uh, There's absolutely nothing we can do. You've, you've lost this pregnancy. I'm sorry for your loss. Yeah, so we were shocked. Uh, and I remember asking the doctor again and again, what do you yeah. mean? What do you mean? And he just kept saying, you have lost the babies. The babies are going to be born today in the next few minutes or the next few hours. They are not going to survive. They're not going to survive. You've lost the both of them. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. Um, the doctor at the local hospital told them all they could provide was comfort care which means the babies would be born 
too young to survive and the hospital would help the babies have a comfortable death. And then the doctor kept asking us again, do you understand that you've lost the babies? Do you understand that you've lost the babies? And we just said, no, this, like, this can't be happening. I just... Well, you, like, I remember looking at Shakina and I've never seen her face that way. Like, it was just a blank... Pale. Was I was just... Pale and a blank... Pale because I was overcome with shock. I just couldn't process what was happening because, like... I could still feel the babies within me. I could still feel them moving. They had become you know, more active. They were starting to kick at that point. Um, so I could still feel them within me. And so it was just a big disconnect between what I felt in my body and what I was hearing the doctors say. In so the meantime, the though, said, you know, the babies had not actually been born yet. And Shakina and Kevin asked for an ultrasound. And they could see that as long as the babies were still inside, their heartbeats were strong. They had no known health problems. Um, and it, you know, it was never clear why Shakina went into labor so early, um, which often happens with, um, with premature labor. Sometimes there are reasons for it, and other times doctors just can't say why it happens. I, I had a natural urge to fight for my babies, to keep the babies alive. I felt like it was my one most important duty as their mom to protect them which means not accepting the outcome that was predetermined for us, which means not... Shakina and Kevin had heard that Mount Sinai had a really high-level NICU, and they had asked about the possibility of a transfer. As far as they know, their local hospital asked for that transfer, but because Shakina was only 21 weeks and five days into her pregnancy when she first went into labor, Mount Sinai initially said no to the transfer. And so the next day, um, Shakina, still pregnant, the baby's still not born, asked again about the transfer to Mount Sinai. And because she was now at 21 weeks and six days, Mount Sinai agreed to admit her. The actual day of her pregnancy really mattered because Mount Sinai has a standard mutually agreed upon by their neonatology staff that they will only resuscitate babies born 22 weeks or later. So once Shakina arrived at Mount Sinai, the OB team there made it clear to her that if she delivered at 21 and 6, they would only provide comfort care if she delivered past midnight. So once she'd reached this 22-week cutoff, that they would try to resuscitate and save the baby's lives. I remember um, the um, OB, I think, doctor who, who accepted the transfer, he actually said these words that really have stuck with me. He said that if you have the babies even a few minutes before 22, it's going to be a death sentence for them. I thought that once they got to Mount Sinai, even though I was at 21.6, I thought that if the babies are born that day, no one's going to deny life to babies who are born. You know, they're going to do no harm. They're going to resuscitate the babies. But then I realized that no, there is this really strict policy in place and I have to get to 22 or my babies are going to die. Mount Sinai has set this cutoff for a couple of reasons. One is because they want to ensure that there is consistency for women who come in in labor early in pregnancy. And this is in order to maintain the consistency. 
I talked to Dr. Prakash Shaw. He's the pediatrician-in-chief at Mount Sinai, and he's also the director of the Canadian Neonatal Network and an international neonatal research network as well. Because you don't, what, what the worst thing you want is that who, which baby gets a resuscitation depending upon who is on. Now, the reason they say they have suggested 22 weeks as a cutoff is because so few babies born before that have survived. Below 22 and zero, at this stage, we do not have the technological capability as well as understanding of what their outcomes are. Survival rates for babies born in the 22nd week of a pregnancy um, sit at somewhere between 25 and 30 percent, depending on the year. I think an important point to understand is that at that really early age, doctors and parents will try to do their best to make a joint decision about what they think is best for the family. And at that early stage of a pregnancy, at least in in 2021, um, 60% of the babies who were born at that age, their parents chose palliative care. This case is unique and particularly tricky because of how close to the 22-week cutoff Shakina delivered. Shakina's water broke about 15 minutes after midnight, and Adia was born at 1.22 a.m., and Adriel was born about 20 minutes after that. For me, it just felt like, wow, all the pain that I went through in the past two days, every difficult conversation, it's all been so worth it because it, I've made it. I've just made it past mm-hmm. this midnight point and my babies are going to be alive. They're mm-hmm. going to be okay. Yeah. Was such if a, they'd been born an hour baby. earlier, um, the hospital said that it would not try to resuscitate them. But because they were born after midnight, they had two teams ready to go and they did everything possible to save the baby's lives. As soon as they were born, they both had to be whisked away to a resuscitation room where they were intubated and stabilized. I recall walking into the recess ward. uh, The atmosphere seemed tense. It was warm as well. Adia weighed 330 grams, which is about the weight of a can of soup. Adriel weighed 420 grams. That's just a little bit under a pound. So they were just incredibly tiny. So I recall walking to uh, Adia's uh, isolate first. Uh, She was all bagged up and and felt a mix of emotions flooding inside. Like on one hand, um, wow, this is my daughter. But on the other hand, she's so tiny. She's probably going through so much pain and like her skin's not formed, it's translucent. I could see through her uh, skin and her organs. Um, So yeah, it was just a a mix of feelings. Caring for babies born this premature is really complicated. The doctors and nurses who took care of these babies um, had to think about everything from how you ventilate them so that you don't damage the lungs to caring for this really fragile skin Um, to making sure they didn't get too many infections, to watching out for brain bleeds, which are quite common in babies born this early, and which both uh, Adia and Adriel experienced. There was not much that we could do. We were not allowed to touch the babies yet because they were so fragile, skin was fragile, and they were wrapped with lots of different, you know, um, bandages and so on to kind of preserve their skin. 
They couldn't touch the babies for a little while at the beginning of their lives. And then Shakina and Kevin were able to do what the NICU staff call hand hugs, where they can just put their hands inside the isolate and sort of touch the baby from rump to crown and just let them feel the touch and love from their parents. Oh, hi. You moved. Hi, you. It's amazing that the babies have survived their birth, but they're not out of the woods yet. We'll be right back. Most hospitals in Canada don't have the expertise or the equipment to care for babies born this prematurely. Canada has 33 tertiary, which means sort of high-level hospitals that have high-level NICUs that can theoretically handle some of these very young babies. Um, so most of the time, if you if a woman were to give birth very early in a pregnancy at a hospital and that delivery happened very quickly at a hospital that doesn't have a high-level NICU, chances are that those babies' fates would be sealed just by where they were born. So if you go back a few decades, you know, the the lower limits of viability was, you know, 28, 27 weeks. I mean, we started started with the 24-weeker. Ten years ago, we were debating about 23-weeker. So this has always been a changing goalpost. It's gone down by, a, you know, sort of about a week per decade to, to where we are now. That has a lot to do with attitude and simply with the feeling that it was worth trying. What I, what I call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't resuscitate anybody at 22 weeks, your survival would be zero. And then you will keep on quoting that, no, 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 nobody survives. And, and as some hospitals and some countries were more willing to try saving babies born at younger ages, they got better at figuring out what worked. What best thing has happened at Mount Sinai is when we started working on 22-week, our outcome of 23-week started to improve because we got better and better at doing it. So previously, 23-weeker, which we were quoting 40%, 30 40% survival, now it became 50% survival, 55% survival. So every gestational age, we pushed the boundary up in terms of outcomes getting better. So things have improved for babies born at really early gestational ages, but there are still challenges and complications for them down the road, assuming they do survive to be discharged from the NICU. Some of the complications they're at risk for include cerebral palsy, developmental delays, vision loss, hearing loss. But it's very difficult to predict which babies are going to wind up facing which kinds of challenges. It's very hard for parents when they are in the delivery room trying to decide, should I choose comfort care for this baby or should I ask that all measures be taken because there is just no accurate way to predict what the health outcome will be for their baby. All you can do is say, here's the general statistics, here are the possible risks, 
and we don't know precisely what's going to happen with your baby. This prematurity has a lot more implications than just a single baby. The whole family gets affected. I spoke with several doctors about what are the considerations that parents have to think about when they're making this decision of, do I choose comfort care for this baby or do I ask for all measures to be taken? And the doctors told me that a a very large consideration for parents is like, what are their personal circumstances, right? If if this pregnancy is in a woman who is 42 and has been trying for a decade with IVF to have a baby and feels this is her only chance, she might make a decision that is different from a family who already has four kids at home and is thinking, if this baby winds up having a lot of medical needs, do I have the money or the bandwidth to give that baby and my other four children a good life? I like splitting the NICU journey into three phases, like the early difficult phase, the long middle, and then the home stretch. And so the early, early... The first few months of Adia and Adriel's lives were pretty challenging. Uh, there were several times when Shakina and Kevin thought they were going to lose the babies. Dreadfully wrong, and we saw, I was just watching the monitors and I saw her heart rate plummet really, really low and her oxygen levels plummet really low as well. And, I, I, and her breathing tube was taped to her cheeks and I recall the doctor saying, um, just rip it off, it's life or death. And, and so they had to rip it off and it actually- the skin peeled off. peeled skin off. And that's when I realized how fragile the baby's lives were and that in a matter of a few seconds, something could happen and, um, you know, they could be really close to death. And we had there, were, there were times, especially in the very early days of their lives, when the doctors talked with Shakina and Kevin about whether it was time to, as they put it, redirect care. And that means thinking about withdrawing care and letting the babies die. Do you have any way of knowing whether those babies are feeling pain when you're doing Oh, absolutely. They are feeling pain. And that's what has been the di dialogue and discussion with the parents at all the time that, look, this is painful, this is stressful, this is not anyone should go through. And we don't want it to go through, but uh, if, since we are continuing, you need to understand that these, are, these things do have long-lasting effect on the developing brain. For us, like, it didn't matter what stage we were at in the pregnancy. If there was a challenge that came up with the baby's health, we would deal with it. We would embrace it and we would take it yeah. upon ourselves as parents to help our babies get through that medical challenge that may arise. And so there were a lot of ifs, like if this happens, we're going to be, um, we're going to be at a dead end if this happens. And so I remember always challenging the doctors and saying that has this happened yet? And they would say, no, this hasn't happened yet. It could happen. And so I would then challenge the doctors and say, if we haven't reached the point yet, let's keep going yeah. and let's take it day by day. Yeah. Um, we're not in denial about long-term difficulties and uh, long-term risk, no, we but we want to take it day by day and focus on what the challenges are for today and what we can do in today to yeah. treat the baby and provide the best care possible. In August of 2022, the babies finally graduated from the NICU. 
Adia had been in for 161 days, and Adriel was ready to go home about a week later, which was 167 days into his NICU stay. 167 for Adriel, and it was so special because our social worker then planned a really beautiful send-off where all of the, the nurses on duty, the respiratory well. therapists, the doctors, um, um, other, other staff on duty, they, they came in and they lined up. Uh, you know, uh, to, towards the exit of the NICU and they played the graduation song for the babies and it was so nice because we asked to bring Adia in so that we could walk yeah. both babies out together. There's video of this and it's really sweet. Uh, it includes Shakina and Kevin each carrying one baby in a car seat and the hospital announces over the intercom that the Nataraja twins are graduating and all of the staff come down and they line the hallway and they clap and they cheer. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, the most amazing thing was that these babies were going home without any technological support, which for babies born that early it was a really rare achievement. You, you know who the musician is going to be. Yeah. Shakina and Kevin threw a really pretty epic party for the twins' first birthday. Happy birthday to they had it at a golf club in Whitby. They had lots of family and friends, um, pink and blue balloons everywhere. The kids were dressed in like gorgeous little outfits. Uh, Adriel had a bow tie. Adia was wearing sort of this like tutu dress. Um, and they had a lunch. They cut the cake and they gave a really moving speech about how much the support of their family and friends had mattered during this long and difficult first year of their children's lives. So thank you so much for praying for us. Um, thank you for loving us, loving the babies from afar. Uh, but we, we never felt alone, we always felt your love. We always felt your I visited them at home uh, in Ajax, and the twins are doing really well in many ways. They're meeting a lot of the milestones for their corrected age, which is the age the babies would have been if their mother is delivered at full term. They're eating solid foods, they are rolling over, babbling, their neck control's good, they smile and make eye contact, they're almost sitting up unassisted. Uh, so a day-to-day -day routine really revolves around uh, feeding the babies, making sure that they uh, uh, get, some exercise, get some exercise in as well. So our physiotherapists uh, show us different exercises that we can do, like assisted sitting and lots of different tummy time, using the ball, using the, the playpen and so on. Uh, so throughout the day... So things are going well for the twins, you know, much better than you might expect for babies born so young but there is still a chance they'll face medical challenges down the road. Yeah, we were told several times that we won't know the full extent of the, the their medical needs until they reach maybe a three-year mark. But again, we're not we're not going to worry about what we don't know and about all the ifs. We're just going to meet them where they're at right now, uh, look to see what their needs today are, and then help them, you know, support support them with their current needs rather than worrying about what the next challenge might be that gets presented. So. Looking at how far you've come and sort of where you are now, what do you imagine, dream about for the twins' future? 
for me, I'm just excited for every single day and what new discoveries we identify in them every day. But in terms of their future, just excited for their personalities to come out and, and for them to grow and be healthy kids and, and um, to support their development along every step, right? And, and we hope that one day they can give back to the medical system mm -hmm. that helped yeah. Bring them to where they are. Yeah. Today. We'd love for the babies to become advocates for other preemies, uh, for the babies to themselves tell their own story and spread awareness about why it's important to save the lives of other babies. And so we're just really excited for, for um, you know, who they're going to become as a result of everything that happened to them. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. Both Shakina and Kevin are musicians, but Kevin is... Uh, particularly loves playing the guitar and all during their stay in the NICU and even at home now he often plays guitar and sings for the babies that's it for today I'm Manika Raman Wilms Melissa Tate gathered audio for this episode our producers are Madeline White Cheryl Sutherland and Rachel Levy McLaughlin David Crosby edits the show. Adrian Chung is our senior producer, and Angela Pacenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Mm -hmm.